I'm curious what your experience is with um, how the church affects the various cult Chilean cultures. And because it seems like tonight, a couple issues that we're talking about is the church trying to have some consistency in a very diverse world. And, um, and I think that when you observe you know, declining diversity, you also have, you have to expend more effort to, to, to keep the community up because there's less resiliency in the community. And I'm just wondering how, how you see the church is affecting Chilean cultures. The church affecting Chilean culture. Is this kind of a cultural imperialism question a little bit? Yeah. And, and how much we tell them. Yeah. The, um, I was, you know, I was hoping that was where you're going. But you talk about Chilean culture. The church doesn't make much of a splash in Chilean culture. We're baptizing basically in church lower middle class. Sometimes we're baptizing the lower class, but it's mainly the lower middle class. The lower classes are, are tending to the evangelical churches, and they're doing much better than we are. They're much healthier, and they maintain their members. They, they, they have a much higher percentage in Chile and throughout Latin America than we do. You've been in Guatemala, have seen that as well, a good high retention. But it's mainly among the poor and the lower classes. Mormons are shooting for a little bit of a, uh, I said a, a slightly higher class if we're doing well. And, and so, we could make a broader effect on the Chilean culture. I'll, I'll come back to the other part in a minute. But the church is doing quite a bit in PR right now in Chile. Um, President Holland visited uh, the president of the country twice while he was there. The first lady of, of uh, Chile at that time, Mrs. Lagos, came here to Utah when she was in Washington, D.C. She made a special trip to come here to Utah to see President Holland. And so there's some effect. We're doing quite a bit with welfare services in Chile and throughout the world, sending blankets, we've opened store, bishop storehouses in Chile recently, and so on. So there's some effect on the Chilean culture. But the other aspect is that we build North American-looking chapels in Chile, as we do throughout most of the world. We really want to start meetings on time, like we try to do here. The church tries to avoid the Wasatch Front culture in exporting that to Chile. But we can't avoid it. We, our missionaries really look out of place in Chile in, in small towns when they're wearing a, a suit and, and so on. They don't in Santiago. People dress very well in Santiago. In fact, working women in Santiago dress better than North American sister missionaries in Santiago. But we stand out in, in the smaller towns. Did some of you find that in, in other, other areas of the world? We used to get Argentine sisters coming in to, to, to Chile to serve in our mission. And they, they were dressed, just dressed to the hilt, beautiful. We'd get North American sisters. It looked like they were wearing a shift or a house dress when they, when, when they, got, when they, when they got off the plane. I, I was embarrassed by, by, by the North American sisters. But anyway, uh, that's the case. But our elders really stand out too much. As, as the, so we, we haven't been able to conform the church to Chilean culture at all. We're trying to get Chilean Mormon culture to be largely North American culture. I've wondered why I was called as temple president there. The, the man I'm replacing is a Chilean. Why not call a Chilean? There are certainly worthy people there. But then I've found out a couple of reasons since. One of them is 
most people uh, who are active in the church in Chile uh, and are also working and you have to work. There isn't a very good retirement program. People continue working in Chile for as long as they possibly can. And that's true throughout most of Latin America and probably throughout much of the world as well. And so there aren't a lot of retired people to choose from because when you're a temple president you have to pay quite a few of your own expenses. The second is that the first presidency, all temples come under the first presidency, they don't come under area presidency, that may be something that's interesting for you to know. Uh, you, you, you don't go through your area presidency, you work right with the first presidency. The first presidency wants to communicate with temple presidency, presidencies in English, and so you've got to, the temple president has to speak English. And there probably aren't enough retired men who are making their, and their, enough money to, to, uh, to pay their expenses and who speak English. And so. But that's just another, so here I'm the cultural imperialism going down to Chile. And so I admit it. I, I, I would really rather see there was a, I'd rather stay and continue teaching at BYU, but uh, anyway, the church calls and you go. Um, I just have a question. I served my mission in Uruguay um, about a year and a half ago. Great. And I still found the same thing that we were really pressured to baptize. Um, and it was interesting to me. My mission president was from Chile, actually. Um, what is it? Who was it? Um, president Herrera. Yeah. Herrera. Herrera. Oh, yes. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I know. It was wonderful. Yeah. Um, but I just wonder, is there something that the church leaders suggest that we shift to rather than that pressure on baptism? Because I know, like, for example, in one of my areas, um, he finally just said that the branch was such a mess. He said, "Don't proselyte. Don't bring anyone else into this mess. Work with the with the with the branch." Mm -hmm. And I feel like that was probably the most productive time of my mission, and I feel like where the the most progress came. But we also didn't baptize anyone for six months. We, we didn't even come close, and mm -hmm. so the church wasn't growing. But I'm just wondering, is there a a shift that's coming down from like the first presidency to focus on his missionaries and his members and go to those places? President Hinckley keeps talking about it. Elder Holland said to me, he said, as I go back to Salt Lake for each general conference, he said, if there's one theme of President Hinckley, it's not what you as members hear. He says, you hear about temples and stand tall and do other things. He said, what I hear is retain, retain, retain. Keep the members we got. He keeps talking about it. It doesn't make much sense to bring someone in the front door and let them go out the back door. And so <clears throat> he said, that's what he's telling us as general authorities, the 12 and the 70s and so on. But there's something lost in the translation as it gets down to mission presidents. And so the church continues preaching, but there's no movement to, to do that right now. It's left up to the individual mission presidents and area presidents. When I, we first went to Chile, our area was Buenos Aires. When we first got there, Chile hadn't become its separate area as it is now. And the area president was a long ways away over in Buenos Aires and he never got down to Osorno. And all he was was saying, keep baptizing, yay, 460 a month, that's terrific. Um, and so, uh, they the often get started without, without the, the area presidency or, and then the, the broader general authorities knowing uh, the whole detail. Um, but, but the President Hinckley at least is preaching that to his workers, retain, retain, retain. Ash, do you want to say something? Uh, well, I have a, I mean, you talked about two things that seem separate, but to me they're linked, about how the church was different when you were younger, and then about the church in Latin America. And to me, I haven't been on a mission, um, but I feel like 
if we could do a better job at saying that the ideas we hear aren't just a certain way, you know, that faith isn't just this certain thing, this like just add water experience where you're like, oh, angels singing and everything's fine after that, you know, and that the prophet is not a sacrosanct person who makes no mistakes and, you know, that the church doesn't have to just mean this thing that we've PR'd it into meaning, basically. And then, if you went down and you also said, well, obviously, then people would be having the mindset, well, the church isn't just about baptizing people, because what does that do for them if the point is progress and processing? And then they wouldn't baptize in a rush. And then you have people who join the church knowing the implications, being familiar with some of the mm -hmm. paradoxes and battles within it, and then they'd be willing to stay, not because even they had great home teachers, but because they were prepared yeah. in the process of, of deciding whether to convert <laughs> to see if they wanted to be actually be a part of the church or a part of the gospel. Anyway, uh, I guess, and so, so my question is, I, I talk about that with people a lot, and they treat it like it's kind of a side hobby. Like, yeah, if you're interested in what, it, in what faith really is and things like that, you know, or you're interested in ambiguities or subtleties of things, that's great, but that's not what, that's not for church, or that's not for missions, or mm -hmm. that's not for sacrament meeting, or that's not for general conference. It seems like it's not for anywhere. Yeah. It's just private sessions where you're like, ah, you know, so I, I'm just wondering why you feel like, if you feel like it's a virtue that we've shifted away from more eclectic, more honest, um, fallible kind of church, and, and why we can't go back, and why more people aren't like, go back. <laughs> John. And before you answer, I'll just pile on a bit. And that's that, you know, there is a way for the brethren to stop these types of baptisms. And I'm passionate about this because I was a victim or experienced it personally. But it started in the early 60s with the baseball yeah. baptisms. And late, it keeps late, going. late 50s. Yeah. Um, there's a way for them to stop it. They get up in general conference, and instead of telling whatever stories they normally tell, <laughs> which we all enjoy, they would say, we're going to spend the next 20 minutes and talk to you about some things that happened in Chile. And we're going to say, we love baptisms, we love bringing people to the church, but sometimes maybe we get a little bit too excited, mm -hmm. and sometimes maybe we bring people in that we shouldn't, and, um, and here's what happens. Here's how it dilutes the yeah. wards, here's how it dilutes the leadership, and we've had to close 35 stakes as a result of this overzealous stuff, and it really mm -hmm. weakens the structural underpinnings of the units, mm -hmm. and we need to stop it. And, a, and one time that happens at General Conference, it, it, it can become transformative for the church because people pay attention to what's said in general conference. Now, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I'm yeah. not asking you why they don't do that. But well, I, I think that that might be a solution. And maybe if they trusted us with that story and that knowledge more broadly, mm -hmm. we'd learn from the mistakes and not keep repeating them. And maybe we'd grow because we'd learn some things that maybe at a higher level we'd realize that we're all in this, this church struggle together instead of just sort of doing what we're told or sort of putting our heads down, etc. Sorry, I don't hope I didn't detract from your question. No, and that is part of my question, is just that it, when I talk about it, it does seem like people are like, it's a side issue, be a better missionary on your own. For me, it's like, it's not divorced from what the church is about, and without mm -hmm. it, the church becomes this lifestyle. Like, I, I mean, I haven't spent tons of time in Latin America, but a lot of the Latin American like com converts I see convert for the lifestyle. It's like, I want my kids yeah. to not drink beer, I want mm -hmm. them to That's not have right. sex before they're married, therefore I'm Mormon. Mm -hmm. That's not what Mormonism is, in mm -hmm. my opinion. You know? So I think the danger is we make it a side issue, and then we have a lifestyle church instead of a church where you really explore the tenets of the gospel. The, the, uh, 
I'm just going to address both of these briefly. John's issue, uh, nobody's going to tell the general authorities what to, uh, to say in general conference. But the, the hesitation is because there's concern that our faith is fragile, John. You know that. And that's why we don't say it. We're talking to members who we need to buck up and encourage. And if I get too candid, your faith might be hurt. I'm sorry for that because I think most of us have strong enough faith that we could handle it presented in a good way. I have wonderful confidence that Elder Holland could do that, but I'm not sure he, he would feel ugly. He feels that's the, the president of the church that, that should be doing that. Continuing, I think in the main we baptize people much too soon in most missions. The Jehovah's Witnesses require two years of, um, of study before you become a, a full-fledged Jehovah's Witness. <clears throat> that may be a little long for us. Uh, that means if you go on a mission, you don't see your baptisms uh, until you know, no, no chance to even see your people being baptized. You might see somebody else's person be baptized, but you don't get a chance to see your own. Um, and I, I think what you will see and, and, and are seeing, we've leveled off in baptisms a bit. We dropped down. We were baptizing about 310,000 people a year during the 90, 1990s and uh, the, the 1995 to about 2003, yeah, 2003. And that time baptisms have gone down you know, to 260, 250, 240,000 a year. At the MTC they just reported that, that for the first time the, this year, 2007, we're seeing baptisms starting to, to come back up. And the, the MTC and the general authorities that have spoken to us attribute that to, to missionaries who are better converted themselves and, and speak, use teaching more with the Spirit and can, can make it work better. They're not, they're not going to get up to that 300,000 level for a while, I believe. Uh, let me just give you the example, though, of, of Brad uh, Wilcox. I, I probably shouldn't be this honest, but some of you know Brad Wilcox. You've all heard him in... in uh, especially for youth or something else. Uh, wonderful. Mission president in Santiago East Mission just came back a year and a half ago. Um, I thought was a wildly successful mission president. But he did a heck of a lot of things to convert his missionaries and he didn't go after the number of baptisms. He ran a little bit of foul in his reputation with the, the then area president, and I won't even tell you who it is, uh, is pretty negative. The then area president has given him, gave him quite a bit of negative feedback and, and made some dramatic, dramatic changes in his mission. The area president told the new mission president how to behave, which was quite rare. They usually don't tell mission presidents that. Uh, they, they let them make their own decisions and own mistakes. Um, that's sad to me because he was really trying to convert his missionaries and grow the church, uh, but his baptisms went way down and the area president was upset about that. We're dealing with humans, and I guess that really ought to be my final thing. We're dealing with humans. The area president wants his area to do well. He wants it to look good. He, he wants to be able to baptize and, and, and go back to general conference and, and say, this is how many baptisms we've had and this is how much the church is growing. We tend to measure ba baptisms when we're first new mission presidents. Soon all mission presidents get a list. You don't get it when you're being trained, but you get it later on, of the 12 key indicators. And these are the things that the brethren look at, the Quorum of the Twelve looks at. 
They do look at baptism, that's one of the indicators, but another is tithing payment. How many adults have temple recommends? <clears throat> How many endowed adults have current temple recommends? And a whole bunch of other things like that. And those are better indicators, but, but they don't talk, we don't ever talk about those in, church, uh, in the general conference. We only talk about the number of baptisms. I guess I had a continuation, which is how individual do you feel like the church should be? Like, is this a big box church? <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Like, it, it, it certainly, it certainly gives that. It certainly gives that mode. I have an I have an article that just came out in the uh, Virginia uh, Virginia Quarterly from the University of Virginia on Mormonism in Chile, and that's precisely the attack that it's a big box church. They, they like even. Here's the formula: do this, and then you're one of us. I don't us. think she, I don't think she uses that term, but but that's the uh, that's the tenor of what uh, she's saying in the article, and um, yeah. As opposed to then, I guess. I, the I think there's I think there's a lot more room for individual participation. Chile right now was it, well they experimented with just a two-hour block meeting instead of a three, because three hours was too long for most people to come and stay, especially if they had kids and so on. And Chilean kids are woefully unbehaved in church, I hate to say that, but uh, uh, and maybe other areas they run up on the stand and do I guess all I wanted to take it back to the sort of maybe a sunstony kind of question, which is then it's in, a per, in our personal, like you started by mentioning people that, that, are, that, that are thoughtful, sometimes have doubts and questions and things. Do you, you feel that um, it's okay and proper that if, if a person does have such questions and different takes on things, it's proper and right for them to interpret the religion as they will and as works for them? Or do you feel it's more important to, you know, put trust in the leadership? I think you've got to do both. And for me, you can be your own personal thing. But let me just come back to, to, to the, what, what I think where the church could go. Why not have drums in, in sacrament meeting if, if, if you're in Africa and that's part of your religious tradition? I think, I think we're allowing that in some places, I think, I hope so. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have an organ uh, in, in a chapel if nobody plays the organ. It, it, it's, it's a dumb thing. Fortunately, we, we've gone to keyboard, electronic keyboards, and so that's a lot cheaper uh, than the thing. Um, <clears throat> I think we could do much better with local, with local music, with local hymn books, and, and incorporate uh, things. Uh, fortunately, hymn books don't have... have uh, God bless America in them in foreign countries, but uh, but but why don't they have uh, why don't we have the Chilean national anthem or something like that? Have pan flute, sure, uh, sure. Uh, so we can do more on that. Yeah, we can, and we 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 should. But there's a worry that it's going to it's the drift that you've got to protect against. I have a question, um, and I apologize if this doesn't relate entirely. Um, but it's actually more a question about Brigham Young University, and because uh, we were talking about Wilkinson, and so this question is—it's more of a, like a comment slash question. Just sort of during the time um, during Wilkinson's era, we saw a lot of changes within the university, especially in the culture of the university, and a lot of those changes continue to 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 exist. And uh, and I think that the culture. I'd like to see the culture change at Brigham Young University significantly, and I hope it does in the next 10 or 15 years, and hope it's, it's a more open culture. And Not likely, no, no. I, since, since I've been here, uh, came in 1972, uh, your name and members from the 70 are, are, are have been the last two presidents, and I think that's probably the direction that it's going to go. And that's not going to create a more open culture. We as, we as faculty have had 
much more trouble relating to the, the, the last two presidents than the previous three who weren't general authorities. Because uh, I guess um, part of the crux of my question is just the idea that like even in our, I, I don't mind the honor code as long as it's an honor code, like something you do on your honor. Mm -hmm. if what bothers me is this culture, I mean even in the honor code you have this portion of the honor code that, that encourages you, not, not only encourages but you, you to rat other people out but to actually, it says that you need to like report each other if you mm -hmm. if you're doing things in, in the existence of the honor code office. I just was wondering. Um, wondering yeah, but but you know what? My advice is just ignore that. I I, I really don't think that. I don't think you're going to get in trouble if you don't. Uh, and uh, and I don't mind seeing the the long hair that I see around here on some of you. I w wish I had some. Uh, <laughs> it would be uh, it, it would be helpful. Um, I've learned to live with, with a lot of things that, and uh, university rules that, that are bothersome to me and somehow I can say I'll ignore it or I'll, I'll follow, it, follow along uh, as long as it doesn't contradict my, my own feelings of integrity. I, I wanted to say that um, one time in an institute class at the University of Utah we asked Lowell Benyon, this very thoughtful man, why do you stay in the church? And he made the observation, because I can do a lot more good with, from within than from without. I can have more effect on the church from within than without. And I really believe that uh, it can. My father counseled me against coming to BYU when I was teaching at the University of Wisconsin. And I said, why? And he said, because occasionally, not always, but occasionally when the institution from which you get your Paycheck is the same one that you put your faith in. He said, "Occasionally you'll, you'll see things. Occasionally you'll see things that make faith difficult, and, uh, and that has been true, but not impossible. Difficult, but not impossible. In my case." Tristan, I had a question which um, is in some ways a restatement of Chris Foster's kind of second question. He was asking, um, as, as we've talked a little bit about in the past, I've had some dilemmas on kind of the, the struggle between um, deferring to authority and kind of um, publicly expressing mm -hmm. um, and kind of publicly championing um, kind of private and personal conscience and, and things. And luckily, those two things don't, don't usually conflict. Um, and, and this may be a question about how you do it, maybe a question regarding advice for me, but it might be a question regarding your, your father and some of his friends and how they dealt with it, mm -hmm. is what, um, how, 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 do you, how, can you, how can you choose between those things? And, and, not, and not just strategically, although I mean, certainly it's a strategic question for me, um, is how, how does it actually affect any good change to make people angry. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's something I'm constantly asking my, myself. Um, but how, but what, what's the ethical thing to do in that situation for you? Yeah. Uh, you're asking about the, how much, you're asking the, the Henry David Thoreau question, you know, the, the, the public uh, getting out and fighting, or, or you know, what, what's, on, on, what's, the, what's the title of the essay I'm not, not remembering? Civil disobedience, John. Civil disobedience. <clears throat> um, I'll just tell you a little story of of, of mine. Uh, when I was serving as chair of the Department of Spanish and Portuguese, um, 
I hired a very, very sharp young man who just gotten his PhD from Cornell. His name was John Rosenberg. Uh, <clears throat> very intelligent. He was unmarried. And when I hired him, <clears throat> the uh, academic vice president of the university told me that, uh, now you know that he will not be able to get tenure if he's not married. And I said, well, I hope he'll get married here. <clears throat> uh, after three or four years, he, was, he did find a, a woman. He was engaged to her. Very fine professor, amazing professor. <clears throat> But just when he came up for tenure, he uh, got disengaged and broke up with her. I took his case at, uh, for his five-year review. It's now six, but then it was five, fifth year review. To the academic vice president, and, and he said, I'm sorry, there's no, no, no chance of him getting tenure here. Uh, and I said, take it to the first presidency. Take it in, in your next board meeting. He says, we can't. He said, we've got other more important things to fight about. He knows the thing. And I said, this is reverse discrimination. I've got two single women in my department, and they can get tenure, and this single man can't get tenure. <clears throat> and um, they wouldn't take it to Salt, to Salt Lake. And I said, uh, and I said, Jay, the, the academic, Jay Bala, the vice president, I said, Jay, I'm going to organize a picket out in front of the school unless you take this to Salt Lake. I said, I'm going to walk, march around the, the thing, and I'm going to have my students just march around here. And I said, John Rosenberg's got plenty of good professors that are willing to do that. I'd seen that done at Wisconsin, because they were quite frequent there. And, and, uh, and um, <clears throat> he said, that's a threat, isn't it? And I said, yes, it is. And he said, give me some time to work on it. Unfortunately, or fortunately, President Holland, who was the president of the university then, got called to, uh, to general authority. And, and, and I said, okay, let's see what happens. The, the academic vice president was, was changed, and Rex Lee came in. And I went to Rex Lee the second day he was there and said, I've got a case. Will you take it assault? Like he said, if you're telling me the truth about what I told him about the man, uh, he said, I'll take it. So I've been fighting cases before the Supreme Court. He said, I can win this one. And, and, uh, <clears throat> and he, he did, and he, he called me a, couple, a few days later after they'd taken it to the... Uh, to the, general, to the Quorum of the Twelve. And I said, what was it happened? He said, President Hinckley, who wasn't the president of the church, it was President Benson, but Pre President Hinckley was kind of running things in those days uh, as, as counselor. President Hinckley just said, oh, he's not married. He said, well, there are a lot of single women there. I'm sure he can find a wife, and just signed it without any problem. <laughs> but I really would have organized that, that thing. And, and that's what we're not doing enough on campus. To organize a picket, you know it's going to get some press stuff. You do the alternative commencement, and, 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 and it gets quite a bit of press uh, for it. Because people want to see some dissent at BYU. And I think you can do it within. I wouldn't have gotten in trouble. I could have done it. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have hurt me. Because you uh, had tenure. Because <laughs> I had tenure. That's right. <laughs> but anyway, so John Rosenberg got, got tenure without being married. He's the dean of the college right now, in case you don't know that, and he's, he's incredible. He and I are teaching a class together this semester. Is he married now? And he's married. Oh, okay. Adopted two children. and. Uh... So you've been, you've been very kind. I don't want to cut things off, but... But I, I, I'm, I'm ready to go home. I have a final question. Um, uh, and this is very specific. Uh, I interact with hundreds of people who sort of fit into this very specific category. Um, they were raised in the church, most are pioneer stock, go on missions, married in the temple, live a happy 10 or 20 lives. 10 or 20 years. So, and lives. And lives too. Then they learn about 
polyandry in Joseph Smith, or they learn about DNA in the Book of Mormon, or they learn about um, uh, you know post-manifesto polygamy, whatever the case may be. And it's such a shock between what they uh, grew up hearing is the official story and what the actual historical record bears to the point where not only do they feel uh, cheated and, and um, uh, you know, deceived, but they often feel uh, like they have a moral and an ethical obligation to leave the church. Um, what, what, I, what I feel like you represent and what these people simply don't have role models for because uh, other you know, <clears throat> leaders in the church generally don't talk about what they know and don't know and definitely don't talk about these hard issues. But knowing who your dad is and knowing that you're a thoughtful man and that you sort of started me down the road of Sunstone, you know, watchers of this presentation are, are seeing a man who knows all that stuff and yet is a believer in, in the restoration. And so I'm gonna, I just ask you a two-part question. For those people who think they have to leave, um, and they probably had spiritual experiences just like you, where they felt like they were yeah. inspired that the church was true. So, um, if you are un if you're if you're comfortable, talk about why someone shouldn't feel like that's their only option, because clearly you could have taken that option and you haven't. And then, if you're comfortable ending with whatever type of testimony you're comfortable bearing within this context, I'd love to end on that note. The, there, there is too much truth to chuck it for doubts and for strange behavior in history. Unfortunately, it's our history that keeps plaguing us. Mitt Romney is facing that dilemma right now uh, of things that, that don't appear right to the, 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 stand, the, the, uh, the people who are living today. I just heard KSL and, and uh, a man was, was, was railing on Romney. It was a minister from an evangelical church was railing on Romney for, did any of you hear this this morning on Doug Wright's show? Was railing on Romney for, um, <clears throat> for his, that he wasn't Christian and, and so on and for his polygamous ancestry and so on. Romney can, can't do much about his polygamous ancestry, let's leave it. So my first response, John, is there is too much truth to chuck the whole church. We maybe overstate some of our cases. We've talked about the fact that we feel that many of our general authorities are, are fearful of our faith and so they don't want to bring up controversy. But here's where the individuals better bring up controversy. I can handle evolution very well because I've looked at it, I've thought of it, read it, and, and I, can, I can live with it very easily. I can handle the fact that there were people practicing plural marriage after the thing because they were human beings and, they, and they, they got carried away and they went way too far with it. They didn't stop and didn't follow their leaders like their leaders wanted them to, to, to follow. Uh, I can live with the fact that, that Joseph Smith had some flaws. We've, we've read the books and, 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 and know of those things. But in the same time, I can still say there is enough truth and there is too much truth to deny the whole thing for one little or two or three or three big things. I think we tend to overblow those things. Uh, I, I was upset in my lifetime with a, a certain president of the church who was obviously a member of the, the John Burt Society earlier. When he was a president of the church, he wasn't. He was wonderful, gave some of the best speeches we, we've ever, ever had. And um, uh, so, so that bothered me. That bothered me. I was extremely bothered as a young man in the in the 60s when I was at UCLA and and Wisconsin 
that blacks did not hold the priesthood. Uh, but it wasn't enough to chuck the whole church. I, I'm still bothered by a book that was published in the 1950s called Man is Origin and Destiny. It really bothers me. It's not a good uh, book. It pretends to have science in it, and it's not science. Yet I knew Joseph Fielding quite well. I took his wife shopping one day and drove him around Argentina for, for several days when, uh, as a missionary and, uh, and, and know the man, a good man, a wonderful man. He even got on my case for his wife spending too much money when we took her shopping. Uh, but, but he was a good human being, uh, a, a good man. But I'm not going to throw let my testimony disappear because of, of that book that he published, even though it upset me uh, at the period of time. So there are all kinds of things in my, my own experience, my own life, that, that make that. Um, while in Chile, I, I had the opportunity to um, translate for President Hinckley on a few occasions. Uh, I didn't want to do it because I was translating from English to Spanish. And I said, uh, when the area presidency asked me to do it, a native speaker ought to do this, translating in their, his, into his own language. And they said, no, but President Hinckley uses a lot of big words and concepts, and a native speaker might not pick it up. I disagree with that. I think there, would have been, there were native speakers who could have done it, but anyway. I was asked to translate for President Hinckley in, uh, before a large stadium, about 40,000 people present. I was scared to death. I, I translate for the prophet, gosh, and, and to a language that is not my native language that just didn't seem right. And, um, but my wife and I did a lot of preparation for it. She, she read his talks in English, and then uh, as, as we were driving, I, I would drive and she would read, and then I would translate them into Spanish, and then we would compare them against the official church translation of those talks and see where I had gone astray. And, uh, and then we made a word, list of words that, that he was using in talks that I didn't know. So we really did our homework to try to, to be prepared. The day of the event came, and um, I guess I just have to tell you this as well. We met in the airport in Santiago just by chance. We got there on Sunday night, and he came in, and they, they told us he was coming into the VIP lounge, so they let us go into the VIP lounge. And as uh, he came through the door, Sister Hinckley saw my wife, and she said, Oh, Cheryl Larson Lyon said, I almost raised you. My wife spent a lot of time in their home because uh, they lived just across the street. And um, had a good chance to talk with him, with President Hinckley, and I said, President Hinckley, I'm really nervous. We sat, we sat and we stood and just talked for about 20 minutes. And I said, I, I've got to translate. Do you have a copy of your talk that I could read tonight so I'd know what to say tomorrow? And he said, he just laughed. He said, I don't have my talk prepared. He said, I'm just going to speak from these notes and these are some of the scriptures I'm using. And he just showed me the scriptures and put them back in his pocket. And uh, the next day in, in the afternoon in this large stadium, we sat and... Um, uh, as, as they presented their talk, some in Spanish and with some in English that had to be translated. And then President Hinckley got up and I stood next to him and uh, he was at the mic and I was just off to the side at a, another microphone. And uh, things went fairly well. I was able to get most of the words and feel like you get them out fast. You've got to do it quickly. You translate, English comes in here and Spanish has got to come out there right fast so that you don't become the focus, so that he, his talk is, being, is, the, is what is heard, and his words in Spanish. And so it's in here and out here very quickly. He talked about his visits to Chile and trips to Chile and, and a little bit encouraged people, very normal things of paying tithing and standard stuff. Then he paused for just a minute at the end and, 
there was just a short little pause, and he said, my dear Chilean saints, I want you to know that this day, the 11th of November, you've heard Gordon Hinckley say that he knows God lives. And I heard those words, and there was nothing that I didn't know. And I started opening them out, and it didn't go in here and come out here. It probably dropped down here someplace, or whatever metaphor we want to use. And I started to say, me, and I just teared up instead, the same thing that often happens to us in, in those moments. And I said, me, me, and, and, and I just couldn't go anymore. And, and, and I got, and I cried, and he punched me and said, go ahead. And, <laughs> and I said, I wish I could. And with that, that was enough of a little relief that I was, they say, mis queridos hermanos chilenos, they say en que ustedes sepan que ese día, 11 de noviembre, ha escuchado, han escuchado a Gordon Hinckley decir que él sabe que Dios vive. But just saying those words and hearing them from him, and then with that terribly strong testimony behind those words, I had to say, I know God lives. This is just one more of those many confirmations that saying God is indeed in charge of things. And then he went on to say, and I want you to know that <clears throat> Jesus Christ lived on this earth, died, and was resurrected here. Jesus Christ, and jo Jesus Christ and God the Father appeared to Joseph Smith. I know that is true. They restored the priesthood, and the priesthood is true and royal. And then he ended in the name of Jesus Christ. I felt that testimony. I've felt it many times before, but never stronger than that. And that's my testimony as well. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.